This is the Deep Color podcast series. Deep Color is an oral history project that features artists and arts professionals discussing their work, ideas, and lives, offering listeners a forthright and unique understanding about the process, experiences, and people behind the artistic pursuit. My name is Joseph Hart. I produce and facilitate this series. These recordings are casual, long form, and unscripted. Deep Color is independently produced and a free resource for listeners. You can learn more about this project by visiting deepcolorpodcast.com. You can also access the archive of past recordings, find links to contributing artists' online portfolios, check out the shop, and make a donation through the support page. Be sure to share this project within your community and rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. Your continued belief in Deep Color is incredibly important, and I thank you for your support. In the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, I'd like to thank all of the first responders, medical professionals, food workers, truckers, educators, and other essential providers that are keeping us safe and healthy. I wish good health and safety to all who are listening. This episode profiles Susan B. Susan is a painter, artist bookmaker, and former editor of Meaning Magazine, which focused on feminism and painting from dissenting perspectives. Susan's energetic oil paintings feature a combination of female figures in fantastical landscapes, art historical references, geometric abstraction, and pictorial invention, all serving as symbolic flashpoints for current social and personal struggles. B's handling of paint is equal parts flat, erratic, and confident. Her backgrounds can be urgent and surreal, while figures and objects are boldly outlined, like storybook images letting viewers clearly know where each piece fits within the scene. B is also a longtime member and represented artist at AIR Gallery, a nonprofit arts organization that supports women and non-binary artists. Susan was scheduled to open a show of incredible new paintings at AIR, which has since been postponed. Be sure to check the gallery website for details and new dates. We recorded this conversation at her studio in the Carroll Gardens section of Brooklyn, at the end of February 2020, just before COVID-19 had been declared a pandemic and had become an undeniable part of the cultural zeitgeist. Maybe we could talk about process. You know, we're sitting here in your studio. Uh, You have a table with all your oil paints. You've got multiple cans holding the brushes, you know, very sort of traditional oil painting table station there. And you've got a series of paintings that are finished that are for this forthcoming show. But I'm always curious when I'm in work that's kind of narrative and representational and figurative as your work is, is there a small sketch before these? How, how, what's the sort of seed that leads to the finished painting? Or what's, the, what's the arc of how these become? Yes, yeah, so usually I do make a sketch and... Uh, Often I have an inspiration, so these are a lot of these are derived from paintings by other people. Um, pretty much everything is, um, some of them are based on Gustave Moreau, some are based on drawings by other people. So I tend to take um, something that I've seen, um, often in a museum, and um, I'll take a picture of it or I'll find it online, and then I make a sketch from that to see whether it would make an interesting painting or not. And usually, even if I take something by somebody like Chagall, because as it happens in this show, I have four pieces that are based on Chagall paintings. 
early, very early paintings of Chagall. Even when I use something like that, which has its own resonance, I change it and make it my own. Of course, yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm sort of picturing you going around in a museum and taking pictures or taking notes or doing small sketches. And I'm curious what captures your attention. Is it is it formal? Is it content? Is it the story being told? Is it the history of the work? Is it the time period? Can Do you have any analysis for what paintings get get brought in here for you to reinterpret or to dissect versus other ones that don't even make the cut? Well, I think it's partially the story behind it because I'm sort of a narrative painter. In some way, there's always a story to each painting that I do, and so I pick up a story, um, whether it's a symbolist story or... I'm also interested in certain periods, so the the work by Chagall that I'm interested in is like 1914 to 1919, and after that I'm not too interested in his work, um, for my purposes anyway, because I was interested in when he was just starting out and how he interpreted the landscape and how he interpreted his own presence in the landscape, and that became very interesting to me, and then in romantic landscapes, I'm interested in how the people function within a landscape and the idea of a couple in a landscape and how they approach um, approach the bigger picture. But it's also a, a point where I can be abstract. Right. So even though I'm doing narrative painting, I'm actually coming out of abstraction. For a while, I was an abstract painter, so there's a lot of abstract passages and also patterns in this work, and that is of great interest to me. Would it be fair to, to throw in a little bit of surrealism in some of these as well? Yeah, I definitely. Mean, I'm sort of picking up on, you know, the, the, you know, you mentioned the couples in a landscape. They're floating on a triangle. Um, the perspective is sort of mishmashed. The scale in the, 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 the figure in recline there versus the angel figures climbing this ladder that goes top to bottom. There's some sort of surrealist, dreamlike things taking place in these. Yeah, I mean, they're not supposed to be... I'm not a realistic painter. Right. I think it's safe to say, and they're all sort of dreamscapes or symbolic scapes. Um, that one's Jacob. Um, that's actually from the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, Jacob's Ladder. So, I mean, I don't, I take a lot of different themes and it, it's really what captures my imagination and then how I could make it even more imaginary and more dreamlike. So the colors are very unrealistic and or they're, they border on, um, on kind of a symbolic presence. Yeah, or fantastic. Yeah, right. th- I mean, there's a lot of invention taking place within these. Right. And your treatment too is, is, illustrative it's it's abbreviated you know you've got like uh, an outline around a lot of your figures some of the color work is flat but then in the background there's more texture so you've you've got these different surface approaches to these which create some depth Um, but they also just push the story I feel like and I know you make art books but you know these like I feel like would have would work very well with a written word next to them yeah, I think in a way, because I work a lot with poets, and I'm very inspired by poetry and the the sort of drama of the poem, which is a, an abstract thing. You know, it's it's what can you what kind of images are conjured up by words. So, um, because I'm so inspired by poetry and by symbolism and by romance and dreams and all sorts of things that have 
I feel mostly have been left out of recent um, paintings to some, even my own paintings. Uh, and the, my last show was all based on film noir and it was all couples based on film stills. And I, and I, since uh, Trump came into office, I've lost interest in some of that. And I really, f I think I retreated in a way to fantasy. I don't really think they're quite surrealist, but I love the surrealists. Um, in a way, I take more from people like Marston Hartley or early American modernists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wouldn't call these surrealist paintings. They're not exactly surrealist. But there's like, a, there's like a, a small like drop of it in there, maybe. Yeah. Maybe that's what I was getting at. Yeah. I mean, I'm also looking at people like Enzor. I mean, I made a version of Enzor's self-portrait with demons, which I substituted myself in for him. Mm -hmm. So I've been also sort of putting myself into um, some of the paintings that are self-portraits by male artists. So the one that's, um, that's from one of Chagall's self-portraits, actually two of these are Chagall's self-portraits have now become my self-portrait. So I like the idea of inserting myself into somebody else's um, narrative and it changes everything from yeah. it changes everything for me but i think it also changes everything for the viewer because when you have uh, a woman surrounded by demons as opposed to a man with a beard surrounded with demons uh it becomes a different painting oh quantifiably yeah, yeah. i mean the the gender identity of these figures or characters if we can call them that in these is gonna wholeheartedly change the narrative and what an interesting sort of tactic to, to replace the the male figure with some version of yourself or a female figure. Yeah. To shake it up. I, but it's not such a conscious decision to shake it up. And in a way, it's more like I identify so closely with some of these male artists that I admire that I've actually entered into their space, but I try to make it my own space. And But it's not like... Um, it's such a conscious decision, but it's more of an artistic decision. Right. It's more about my own self-identification as an artist who's looking at mostly male artists, <laughs> or, you know, especially if you're looking at the 1890s or 1880s um, or the beginning of the 1900s, which is a, a period I particularly like. But I, uh, some of my stuff also goes back to medieval times. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I want to somehow... I insert myself as a character within these works. Yeah. You know, keeping in on thread with process, uh, which is how we sort of got to this place. You know, I'm wondering, as you're working, as you're beginning a painting, is there a certain point in that process where you realize you're on to making a good painting, a successful painting? And then conversely, what about when, what do you do when you realize this one isn't working? Well, sometimes I just put a painting away for about 30 years. <laughs> so um, some of the ones you're seeing right now, I actually um, are from like one of the ones, Orpheus, was one that I stopped painting in 1987. And I had it in storage in my back room and I pulled it out and I thought, I really like parts of this painting, but I don't like parts other parts of the painting, and I think I'll re-examine it, partially because I became interested in the theme again. And so if it doesn't work, I sometimes just put it aside yeah. and turn it to the wall. Stop looking at it. <laughs> well, I just stop looking at it, or I repaint it. 
you know, and because canvas is expensive and paints are expensive and you don't want to really have a failure on your hands. <laughs> so sometimes you just have to uh, realize it's not working. And then I repaint it. So sometimes underneath some of these newer paintings are older paintings that I decided they weren't working and I turned them even a different direction mm -hmm. and I repainted them. So, um, so if you want to be accurate, you could say that some of these paintings are actually have been painted over 20 or 30 years, but, wow. <laughs> um, but I don't really, it's not like I painted them the whole time. Yeah. You know? Yeah. What about mm -hmm. a successful painting? Um, is, you know, when you, when you're in that groove or you're, and it's flowing and you're really excited about it and you can't wait to get back at it, um, you know, when you wake up in the morning, I guess I'm curious to hear about like when, when it's joyful Oh, yeah. And when well, things are really singing. Well, sometimes it happens. <laughs> I <laughs> Is mean, it rare? Well, I'm, I guess I'm not such a joyful painter. I, I wouldn't really characterize myself as full of joy, but I, you know, it's more of a struggle, actually, and the process is more like built up over layers. So there's a painting here called Non Finito, which is a funny title for it because, in fact, I started it in 2016. And then I put it away, and then about two months ago, it's two figures from Munch, Edvard Munch, and they're looking into a landscape. And I guess I thought, well, I can really work more on this painting. And I guess you could say I was joyful to take the painting out again and then to put strange circles in it. And I really enjoyed working on it a lot, but I don't know that getting up in the morning, I was like, oh my God, today to I'm going to, I can't wait to get to this <laughs> monk painting because finally I'm going to make it work. It's more, because I, I tend to just like work on, things just happen and I paint a lot on the floor, speaking of process. Um, there's a certain amount of this that is process where I use sand and enamel paint and I drip on the floor and so I don't always know what the outcome is going to be until the next until the next morning. So there's a bit of a mystery there. Yeah. So I sometimes leave the studio because I live in the same building. Uh, I will leave the studio in the late afternoon when the light is fading, and I'll go down and have dinner, and then I don't look at the painting until the next day, and then I pull it up, often from the floor, and then I see what's happened. And then I work on it from that. So everything takes a while. It's not um, because I'm using oil paint, which is slow to dry. Things um, take a while to gel. Yeah. Um, we've talked a little bit about some of the ideas and themes in your work. I guess I want to know what you hope viewers take away when they see your work in terms of the story being told. Um, well, I think what they have noticed in terms of people who live with my work, who are collectors of my work, is they say they always see new things in it. And I find that's like the best thing I could hear about somebody living with my work is that there's things that you don't see right away. And it's not supposed to be a, something that's obvious all at once, which is why I'd kind of try to have complexity in the work. And I like to have a lot of patterns and um, things that don't, won't, you won't necessarily see on first viewing. So what I want is for the viewer to have um, questions, you know, their dreamscapes. 
So there's not, you know, sometimes says somebody will say, what does that mean? But that's not for me to tell. And mostly I'm not really standing next to my work explaining it. So I like the fact that there's a bit of mystery. Of course. To the work. And so not everybody knows. They'll ask a question like in the one based on Enzor. I've gotten the question pretty often like what is the rooster doing in the the middle of the painting because it's a right in the center there's a circle with a rooster yeah and I actually don't know why the rooster is there because it's in fact picked up from the Enzor and I don't actually know why he put that in there but I liked it because it was mysterious and it's probably a symbol of Christ but it's not clear it also refers to a sound so I like to have things in the painting sometimes that are also um, could be sound you know that you could imagine a sound yeah coming from them and yeah um, there's a lot of sound in that painting between the creatures and monsters right and the sort of expressions that they're making but yeah then the, the rooster right in the center um, as a, almost like a magnet for everything to be around it's got a, a you know it's rebounding in an interesting right. way it it radiates yeah. also. Yeah. So um, what I what I hope for is that people have like a time with the painting, and that even if they live with the painting, that things will occur to them, and they'll have questions, and they'll wonder why did the artist do this or that? Because I often see paintings in museums, and I really have questions. You know, like why did why did the artist put that like you know, seashell in, or what is the, you know, what is the meaning of some shape, even in abstraction, like why is there a triangle, and what does a triangle mean, and, you know, so I like to embrace the ambiguity. Yeah, yeah, I think that's well said. The other thing that, you know, I've heard other people say is as soon as our work leaves our studio and it's out in the public realm, we surrender meaning. We don't own the meaning anymore, and I think that's important to remember. Um, of course, there's other artists that have very specific agendas and intents with their work, and maybe that's a different situation. But um, yeah, we have to let go of the meaning, and that's often for the viewer to to arrive at on their own. And I think that's one of the great things about showing in public. Before I had so many gallery shows, um, you know, the first few times it was kind of scary because you don't know what the public's seeing. All of a sudden you see people in front of your work and you're, you know, oh my God, what are they thinking, <laughs> you know? And it's uh, something about being public it that way changes your work because now I'm more used to it and I know that the people have opposing opinions like they'll say, this one's my favorite and I really don't like that one. Or, But you'll find out that, you know, 10 people will have 10 different favorites yeah which is the great thing right yeah i think think that's absolutely and that's why showing in public i think um really changes an artist's work and taking the work out of the studio changes the work and it changes how the artist sees their own work which ends up you know making your work uh different because you know you have a better sense of what somebody might say (laughs) when they see the work and so you have to either ignore that you know, like just think, okay, I'm going to go my own way, whether or not anybody likes this. Yeah. Or you can take into account the fact that certain people seem to like certain works and maybe that's a good direction to go in because 
that direction seems more popular <laughs> with a with a viewing public. You know, a, a reoccurring question I ask artists is kind of their psychology while they're working on their paintings, what they're thinking about, what sorts of ideas are coming in and out of the mind. Do these paintings allow you to kind of emotionally wander uh, or are you thinking about getting that orange just right or is it maybe a mix of what's going on in the painting versus life around it right well i'm distracted a lot while i work because um you know the phone which actually i can't really check because i've got my gloves on and um maybe that's a good thing yeah it's a good thing <laughs> but then i find my you know somebody will text me in the middle of like i'm trying to you know, oil painting is really messy and you can't really pick up a phone, but then I have the radio on because I like to listen to the radio. So Music or talk or um, news shows? Or both, all three usually, yeah. but since the last few years, I can't really take too many news shows because it gets me so upset that I can't really work. So I try to go for jazz a lot because I think my work has a lot to do with jazz. Um, it's theme and variations. And um, so I like to listen to jazz and I listen to some interview programs and, you know, I want to have some mental stimulation because sometimes I'm doing things that are n kind of not exactly boring, but not really that, you know, I'm just kind of filling in an area. <laughs> yeah, you're going through the motions. The other thing I is, I was going to say, um, we're often isolated. We're by ourselves in this studio. So having another voice, whether it's like... Uh, you know, uh, an audio book or something kind of keeps us company. No, that's definitely for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I often like interviews like we're doing now. I like to listen to interviews because it gives me another two voices that I can hear in my head um, while I'm working. And then lots of times I'm just thinking, when you say, what are you thinking about? I don't even know. I'm sort of just dealing with color. Mm-hmm like or shape and I'm just thinking well this thing needs a purple in this place and it looks like the pink needs to be in the other place and that's not even I'm not even sure I'd call that thinking no I get that I mean it's sort of visual and I, I'm visualizing how something might work and so I tend to spend a lot of time looking at the work from a certain angle and then sometimes I turn the paintings upside down or even back you know I, I look at them I turn them, I wrote the, rotate the paintings yeah. all the way around because there's certain things that I don't see. I think that's a good exercise. Yeah. I recommend everyone do that. Yeah, I've really gotten into it, and then I like to look at them in mirrors. So I, it's all different ways to get perspective on the painting. Yeah, I mean, we could argue that making a painting is dealing with decision-making and choices and deliberating around those choices. You're saying, like, where does the pink go? Where does the purple go? Yeah, and just dealing with all those choices, which are endless, is kind of what I'm thinking about a lot yeah. in the studio, too. I don't, I don't On top really... of the craziness of the world and what I'm going to make for dinner when I get home. So it's like this weird stew of life outside of the studio, the painting and what it needs, current events, what I'm upset about what i'm excited about uh, you know it's a real kind of no, mishmash yeah definitely it's a you know that's the layering of your mind for one thing and then i'm very obsessed with color so a lot of times i will paint a painting and then i think no it really like the green should be a, a kind of pink and a 
you know, I just get these ideas and then I'll try them out and then sometimes they don't work out and then I have to repaint the painting. So I would say the paintings that you're looking at mostly are pretty layered because I will change a color like a pink in the background or a white um, or, you know, a yellow and then I'll paint over it like uh, with a tint because I'm not happy with it. Mm -hmm. So I take my time because um, I've had three years between shows and so I'm not in a terrible rush. <laughs> and I have a lot of work. I'm very prolific. So it's things just kind of pop out. Yeah. You yeah. Know. That's great. You know, why don't we talk about the show that you've been, pre been preparing for? Uh, you know, before we turn the mic on, um, we were talking about editing and when you have, you know, three years worth of work editing down and, and this is a show that you've titled anywhere out of the world that's opening at air gallery, AIR. I've always wondered, how do you, how do you pronounce that? I always say AIR, but some of the younger members of the galleries mm -hmm. say air. So I'm, I'm, I've given up. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, <laughs> uh, people kind of package it how they want to, I guess, suppose. But, um, can you talk about sort of that editing process and, and looking for the work that you want or how you curated out of this three years worth of work for the show? Well, it's actually been quite an ordeal because I have 30 paintings. I made a list of 30 paintings that could possibly be in the show. And it's actually more than 30, but that was sort of an edited <laughs> list. Um, and then I was thinking a lot about what what narrative I want to have. I like to title shows because that's something I kind of did from the first show I had, although I can't remember if that one actually did have a title. But it's something I've learned to do over the years is to give a show a title and to give a show a focus. Um, and considering that my work is not necessarily that obviously <laughs> focused in a certain direction, this one I... This show, Anywhere Out of the World, was really to be um, named after this Baudelaire, line from Baudelaire, which was, in fact, the title of the Chagall painting from 1914 that I was using as a model um, for another painting. So it's a layered effect, but the point was that I was interested in dreamscapes and escaping from the world because listening to the news, which I can barely... Uh, you know, stand when I'm in my studio about ecology and all the terrible things that are happening in the world, the wars, etc. I felt like I needed to have a place where one could escape. And when Chagall was working on this painting in 1914, at the time of World War One, he was looking, and Baudelaire were looking to escape from their circumstances. Yeah. And that's why I think their work became very dreamlike. And um, that's what interested me in terms of this show. So even though I had actually painted 15 still lives, which I had shown in Tennessee, I had a show in Tennessee at Belmont University, and that was mostly the still lives and landscapes. And none of the, none of the devils and all of these um, the mythological stuff. The mythological yeah. and the sort of um, semi-religious imagery was used in that show. Um, so I wanted to actually refocus and go more in the direction of the imagination 
and symbolism and romance and fantasy and those were the things that interested me to show in this particular show and I think in terms of the timing of the show which is opens March 20th I think that that's what I'm feeling right now with everything that's going on with the coronavirus, with just so many terrible things that I just have to kind of get into my studio and escape. And I don't believe in making escapist work. I don't think you can really escape from the world. So it's more, um, it's, it's, a, it's an idealistic No, I get that. <laughs> you know, I, I, really, be, I really believe in, in the act of making art or maintaining some sort of studio practice as some form of self-care. Um, and I think that's different than escapism. Um, you know, taking care of our minds through the work and our emotions is incredibly important. Yeah, I agree with that. But I also think art, you know, I don't, I know, I don't practice art as therapy particularly, but also as a practice of um, coming to terms with the world and in, in terms of image and color and texture and a way of portraying the world. Yeah, or just some form of analysis. Being able to um, analyze the world around you through making, I think. Maybe that's what I was trying to get at. Yeah, yeah. no, I'm totally in agreement yeah. with that point of view because <laughs> I, I very much think it's a way of processing uh, the world and art, no matter whether it's abstract or whether it has color or it doesn't have color or if it's sculpture, or photos, which I also did for a while. I did abstract photography in the 70s. It's a way of, of like examining visual, you know, visual metaphors. And also, the other thing that I'd like to say is that art should be, you know, visually pleasurable. And I try to make work that people actually enjoy looking at. Um, I was trained by minimalists, and I have absolutely not a bone for that's, <laughs> of minimalism in my that's entire That's really body. interesting. Yeah, I mean, um, what a mismatch if you're trained by minimalists. I would say these are pretty far from minimalism. I know, and uh, they were they were not too happy with my work, my teachers, but um, maybe it was good for me because I learned how to work uh, in two colors for several years, only painted in white and blue. And I guess um, that trained me to uh, use every possible color <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there in the go. rainbow. <laughs> there you go. Uh, you know, it's rare that I that I get to sit down with a native New Yorker. Can you tell me about being a native New Yorker and growing up here and living here for as long? I mean, obviously, I know you've traveled and all that, but I mean, yeah. you've, you've you've seen all the changes, good and bad, of the city. Um, and, and more specifically, the, the art scene here. Um, what, is, what, what has it been like to, to well, have lived I here Well, I mean, you know, I didn't, I didn't realize it was anything special when I was growing up because I was born on Manhattan Island, and um, I just grew up, like, kind of playing in the streets and in Yorkville. My parents were immigrants, so I, in a sense, didn't feel, like, totally as though I was that grounded um, they came from Europe, and so I felt more, in a way, kind of somewhat European and somewhat American. But, of course, I wasn't American, but they'd only been in this country for five years when I was born. So I, I had a sense that I was a little bit of an outsider. But then everybody in New York was immigrants, so I fit in that way. And, um, 
you know, I got to go to a lot of shows. I, I grew up a few blocks from the Metropolitan Museum of Art where I would just go whenever I felt like it as a child. Um, and I was also, you know, at that time, seven-year-olds went to school by themselves. And so I wandered all around the city by myself from age seven on, you know, like I would go to the Central Park by myself, I would go to the museum Early by myself. Early independence. And I went yeah. to like the library all the time, took out books. So I saw a lot of art. Um, I went to the Modern, I went to the Met, which existed at the time. Not all these, you know, maybe the Whitney was sort of around, but I went mm -hmm. to a lot of galleries because my mother was a painter, Miriam Laufer, and she showed on 10th Street. And I used to go to get dragged to a lot of openings and see a lot of bohemians. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it seems like it's stuck. You're still, <laughs> in, still that, in that crew, in that scene. I'm still in that scene. And I guess my father was also an artist and a graphic designer. And in the summers, we would often go to Provincetown, which had, Cod. Which had yeah. another art scene. So I was pretty immersed in all of these um, scenes. And I didn't think that much of it because I knew a lot of other artists children and we all hung out together and then I also knew you know regular kids who whose parents well, seemed like most of them were psychiatrists but you know it was yeah, yeah. Uh, it was kind of the Manhattan of Woody Allen I would say did it seem I mean this is a dubious word but it did it seem normal like a, like art was just normal as a part of life because yeah. Every, everyone was around you was involved in some capacity Yes, yeah. I would say that art was a part of my life, totally. Yeah. My, my mother worked at home. She also had a studio, and I would see her working on her jobs. She was also a commercial artist. Um, and so I, I would say that it just seemed like part of everyday life. Art was not something that was foreign right. or like you had to leave the house to be... You know, we had a lot of art books. Or a we, hobby that maybe took place on only on the... Sunday afternoon No, or it was something that I was totally immersed as a child, but I didn't really realize that that was very exceptional, in fact. Right, I guess that's what I'm getting at. Like, where I grew up, I mean, I was lucky. My, my mom w was a, an artist. My grandfather worked for GM in Detroit as a designer, so I was around art, but I grew up in a rural town in New England where, like, uh, an, the idea of an arts community or an art culture was sort of out of reach uh, for a kid growing up. So um, my experience contrasts yours yeah. in terms of exposure and possibility and having models to look at, not figure models, but like examples of people living as artists. That just yeah, wasn't around me really. I know, but my parents were very discouraging actually no because kidding. they thought um, it was such a bad field. <laughs> because we because there's no money. There's or, no money yeah. and we didn't have any money. And, you know, they thought I should be a lawyer or a doctor or something because I was also very intellectual as a child and read a lot and was a good student. So they really had hopes that I was going to um, exit the field. <laughs> um, they didn't want me to go to art school. They actually wouldn't allow me to go to art school. Okay. So I went to Bartered, which is a very um, academic school, and I was very good at academics. So it was I was kind of stuck in a way because really my preference was art, always yeah. art. So I studied a lot of art history at Barnard. And 
I knew a lot about art history because I spent all my time going to museums. I still do the same thing. Yeah, I mean, it, it's still in your work. I mean, yeah. there's a lot, there's all these art historical references and it makes sense as a, you know, hearing your story of being young and going to all these museums and libraries and looking at books. It makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I just was very immersed in the history of art and what artists thought and imagery. Um, I've always taken a real interest in sort of medieval art and Renaissance art. And um, so my, my scope of my thinking tends to be art historical, I think, in a way. And it's even probably more so in the books than the paintings. But because I was, you know, immersed in all of this art <laughs> as a child and was hung out with a lot of artists um, for the good and for the bad, you know, and same now that I've been married to a poet um, for 50 years, I'm also surrounded by literary people. That's a good thing for painters to be around, I think. Yeah, painters and poets tend to get along pretty well. <laughs> um, I'm an example of somebody who gets along with poets anyway. Yeah, um, there you go. And I, a lot of them write about art, so that's also been a very nice thing for me. Yeah. I know another part of your identity is someone that makes artist books and someone who's involved in book arts. Can you talk about making art books and how that connects to your painting practice or disconnects? Well, I've made 16 artist books. Um, I've worked with different publishers. Partially, I started as a way to do something outside of the painting because painting is so demanding and it's nice to have another practice. Plus, it gave me a way to work with these poets that wanted me to not quite illustrate their books, but to do uh, make accompaniments to their books. So it started really as a way of collaborating with poets. And then also when I was working as an abstract photographer doing photograms, in 1978, I published my first book, self-published, which was called Photogram. And meanwhile, I was also designing a lot of um, a lot of magazines, small magazines, and working as in publishing. So it was another sideline to what I was doing as a painter because painting, for a long time, I couldn't get the painting shown at all. And I didn't have my first solo show till 1992 and I was already 40 years old. So I had to have something else that people could take away from my work. And one of the ways I could get the work out into the world was to make these books. And people really liked the books and I had an audience for the books. And also then I started to have publishers. So uh, it's been really, I love making the books. I'm really, really happy to make books. And it's another way to connect to different audience outside of the people that can just see the paintings. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you know, a book in a lot of ways is much more approachable than a painting or attainable for a lot of people. You know, fits in the hand we're familiar with how a book operates a book everyone kind of understands um what a great way to get get your work out there yeah it's been really really helpful in terms of um, meeting other people and the books are collected in a different way so um some of them are quite expensive and one-of-a-kind type books or hand-painted books yeah, unique 
unique books, but some of them are hand-painted as an addition, so I'll make 40 hand-painted books or 12 hand-painted books. Um, and I really enjoy making the books, and I like the fact that some of them are more affordable than others. Right. Um, I also make books that are offset so that people can afford them. Fabulous Femini was the one I did in 2015 with Johanna Drucker, and we're working on a new book, a sci-fi fairy tale book, that'll be sort of for children and adults, and that's coming oh, out later this year. Great. So um, it's been a really nice way to supplement, um, you know, and also to get away from the paintings too, yeah. because sometimes, I'm so and drawings also are a way to um, kind of get away from the, the heaviness of the paintings. Yeah, it's a different way of thinking. Um, it's a different way of moving through the page with a you know a marker versus a brush type of thing or a pencil versus a brush but i'm a big a lover of artist books and i love the sequential nature of a book and page to page in those relationships uh there's something that i would like to make more of myself um i also just think it's a great exercise to have i mean we sort of said this already but i have something else to to do when the paintings are giving you a headache or you're just not into it to have this other sort of side practices or adjacent practice. Yeah. I, I mean, don't know I, what the right word would be. I, I think that's right. Well, you'll see as you're in my studio now and one end of the studio is where I keep the oil painting and I have that really separate from the other end of the studio, which is where I make the books. So I have a totally different setup because I have watercolors and gouache and inks and um, collage material on the one table, and I keep it far from the stuff that I use in the painting. So I'm really happy to have the studio that has two, two. It's really yeah, all sections. floor through. It has yeah. it has sections for each practice because I've actually always had a separate table for doing the books because. You don't want to mess the books up. Sometimes I'm uh, having to paint many, many pages of a book, and I don't want to. And I'm not painting them in oil. Yeah, I was going to say with with oil paint, you sort of want to have things uh, sectioned off because you know the oil paint will get everywhere. And the oil paint is very messy, and yeah. it's also something that you can't use with paper because it eats the paper. So I use. I have a totally different practice, the different brushes and everything for oil, and then I have a whole different set of tools for working on paper mm -hmm. and working on the books. Yeah, maybe you know while we're on studio, I'll, I'll I, I sort of described the sort of oil painting room that we're in now, but let me take a crack at describing the rest of it for listeners real quick because I think that's interesting to hear. As you said, it's a floor through apartment. Um, when I came in, that's, that's maybe like the bookmaking room Yeah. and there's bookcases with books on the walls. There's a little kitchen off, off of that. This middle room, um, is sort of display or viewing as well as storage. And then the room we're sitting in now, uh, is the oil painting studio and it's got wonderful natural light coming through. It seems like you really are able to kind of paint with the sun. Yeah, uh, I pretty much yeah. do that. Like, I don't work at night very often because I love the light in this room and I face the park. And I pretty much work with the sunlight. I mean, when it's very dark, I turn on the overhead lights, you know, when it's raining or, mm -hmm. or snowing or whatever. Um, but usually I try to work with the natural light. And on my watercolor table, I also have natural light. 
So it's really important to me to have this light. Um, that's why I don't use the middle room because the middle room doesn't have a window. Yeah, you're relying on the lamps. Yeah, if you go I in mean, there. it's a brownstone, and so it's a floor through, and the middle rooms don't have any windows. Mm -hmm. And I really like to work where there's a window and a view mm -hmm. because it plays into the work. It really does. I sometimes forget how color changes under lamp versus natural light. Right. And if, you, if you're dedicated to using natural light to sort of understand color and color relationships, um, that's pretty great because things change. Yeah, they quite do. drastically in no, different I know. lighting situations. I think it's going to be strange to see these paintings in um, the artificial light of the of a gallery, of a gallery yeah. where there is no natural light at all. And since I usually see them with natural light, it sometimes seems very harsh when I see them in a gallery, and I suddenly see um, things that I didn't see before. So I don't always really like to see how they look in the na in the gallery lighting. Um, it's sometimes a bit of a shock. Yeah, yeah, it's a different experience. Still on the studio idea, I'm wondering how you, if you have any sort of tactics or, or sort of rules for how you manage studio visits when you have visitors over here. I think this is something that artists love to hear about mm. in terms of, creating the conditions for um, an insightful studio visit? Uh, well, I don't always have insightful <laughs> studio I know, that's I, sometimes I, a tall order to ask. Um, well, I, I edited a, a magazine called Meaning, and it was a magazine of artist writings, and then the first issue, which was in 1986, I, I just collected verbatim uh, phrases that people had said in my studio, and a lot of them were not complimentary. Well, I was a young artist at that time, um, and it, I would I would write down what people said, and they were sort of shocking. Like you should use a bigger brush, or you need a different studio, or your work. What does this mean? Your work doesn't make any sense. You know. That sounds like a teacher, <laughs> like having an instructor over to your studio. Or no, something. it was other artists or dealers usually, but or curators, um, and I guess. Um, now I'm much less vulnerable to all of that because I've had 22 solo shows and I've been in a zillion group shows and I don't think there's anything you can say that's really going to throw me. But um, as a young artist, I was very intimidated by studio visits and I never knew what I should show, shouldn't show. Um, you know, having a dealer over because at the time I was looking to get a show. So when I was looking to get a show, it was particularly difficult now that I actually have a gallery that I've had, this is going to be my ninth show there, <clears throat> it's not an issue really because I know I'm having the show and I don't have to please, well, I do have to please the public and I do have to, you know, I have the gallery directors over, but it's not, it's not the struggle of like, oh, I really need to put out different work or... You know, I just take it all with a grain of salt because I have too much experience now, and now I know that some people will like certain things, they won't like other things, and it's not even that important necessarily. Like, yeah, yeah, and sort of like we said before, um, one person's going to love that painting, the next person you have over is going to think it's the worst thing in the world, so... Um, yeah, it's very, very... It's strange about showing your work because it's very... Um, you know, unpredictable, I would say, is one thing. I mean, there's certain paintings that seem to, everybody seems to like, but then sometimes somebody will come over and they'll say, oh, you really shouldn't show that painting. And then, then 
another studio visitor will come over and say that painting's the most important painting in the studio. Yeah. And because I have, you know, a lot of experience, I'm not really thrown off by these types of comments um, that much. And how I prepare is that I just like clean up the studio. <laughs> I tend to clean up, like put a lot of the newspapers away and, you know, I tend to be pretty neat in the studio anyway, but if I'm really having a very important studio visit, like I'm having one next week that I'm a little nervous about, I probably will even clean the table with the watercolor stuff and move stuff off, um, which I don't like to really do. Yeah, it sounds like you kind of get in like a host mode where yeah, you're putting away kind of... I put away Detritus and yeah, yeah. Well, detritus? I don't, detritus? Detritus. I don't yeah. want to... I. I mean, I think that um, it's interesting because I've been to a lot of other studios and some of them are incredibly messy and nobody seems to mind it. So, but I'm kind of into neatness. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think there's a rule to what we should or shouldn't do. I think it's up to the individual. So uh, uh, I'm yeah, I mean, curious there are, how people like to operate in them. Yeah, I mean, I have friends that are incredibly messy painters and they're like, you can't even sit in a chair when you're in their studio because you might get paint on yourself and they're always covered in paint, you know, and I'm not that kind of painter. I'm like more of a clean painter. Like I put an, an apron Yeah, on. you said you wear gloves. I wear gloves. I've yeah. started to wear gloves because it was getting so hard to clean the oil paint off my hands and also using enamel, which is really hard to get off. So I, I didn't wear gloves for years on end, and I think it was actually a mistake because I think... Well, there's so many toxins for one yeah, thing. Yeah, it's a safe, safe health and safety thing at a certain point. But I don't wear gloves when I do the watercolors yeah. because it's really easy to clean off. I mean, I'm used to now having studio visits, but I usually mostly do them right before a show um, when I'm preparing for a show. But between shows, I often don't really want to have anybody in my studio. Yeah, when things are still mm -hmm. trying to figure themselves well, out. I'm, while or... I'm working on something and I'm yeah. not sure which way it's going and I can sometimes get... Um, a little put off or distracted by somebody's chance remark. <laughs> yeah, that outside input input is probably you know not not then and there. No, I later mean, down it, the road. You know, it's something there where sometimes I just want privacy and I don't really want to have anybody's input. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, you know, what about the things that drive you forward in the work that make you keep coming back to painting? This is my way of asking about being satisfied as an artist, which is something I think about quite a bit. Like, what am I chasing through this work? What am I, do I have some goals with the work? What am I happy with the stuff that I'm making? Well, I tend to work towards a show because I know, like for instance, I knew already three years ago in 2017 that I had this show scheduled three years ahead. So, between shows, I was thinking, what do, what do I want? You know, how do I want to change my work? I don't repeat myself that much, um, as it happens. <laughs> I'm the kind of painter that every painting's like new, you know, it's mm -hmm. like I'm starting again. Yeah. And especially with this body of work, I think I actually didn't know what I wanted and I just wanted to explore and I felt free to explore because it was just a time period between shows and it was three years. So that's a long time for me because I, I tend to work a lot. So I, I don't know. I just saw things in museums that caught my eye and or I had thoughts about what I wanted to do and I just 
went after it. And I didn't feel obliged to please anybody mm -hmm. except myself. Um, so that's really what I've done with this body of work. Yeah, I think that's a good thing to sort of focus on <laughs> is making work for yourself. Well, I think I have to keep myself happy. And, you know, um, w one of the reasons I use so many bright colors is really kind of cheer myself up. So I think, um, you know, who wants to come to a studio and like just see all these dark, sad paintings? Yeah. No, I get that. <laughs> That's funny that you say, or maybe not funny, but it piqued my curiosity again, because I think in the beginning I, I threw out the word joyful and you're like, I'm not a joyful person, <laughs> but some of these colors, you know, color has baggage, mm -hmm. cultural baggage. And mm -hmm. these are bright colors and I could argue joyful colors. Um, and there you are mentioning again, they're sort of designed to cheer you up in a way. They're, they're to cheer my, it's true, but I think they're, they're to cheer myself up, you know, um, because otherwise I'd feel kind of melancholy in the studio, <laughs> yeah. but I, I want to cheer myself up. And I notice that people seem happy when they see the work. Um, like, for instance, when I had this show this summer in Nashville, which was a very, for me, very remote thing to do because I sent the work down. I didn't meet the curator in advance. She'd never really seen the work except online. It, it was very different. And then I met, you know, all these new people who are seeing my work for the first time. And I, and I could see that they were really happy. They were happy to see the work. The work was making them happy. It had, it does have a joyous feeling to it, but that may not be the feeling that I'm having as I'm doing the of work. Course, of so course. So it's more like I'm working and I'm not necessarily that joyful while I'm working. I'm absorbed. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm That's absorbed well and I'm trying to make a composition. And I'm trying to make sense. But of course, I'm. it makes me happy when people are happy seeing the work and somebody says, oh, I, you know, I really love this painting. For instance, in this show, it was mostly art students who were looking at it or people who had nothing to do with uh, painting. So it was a real um, kind of audience that's different from the kind of audience you get in a New York gallery. Yeah. What about the horizon? Uh, I know you have this show in a couple of weeks that's opening up, but are there other projects that you have on your list that you want to tackle? It, whether there's a space to show the work or, or maybe it's just a dream project uh, a book that you want to make does anything come to mind when i when i ask well that? i mean i am working on a book i've been working on a book for two years maybe even longer in fact this uh third collaboration with the book artist and designer and writer johanna drucker and we've done two books together um a girl's life and then fabulous femini and which was all historical women a book about historical women. And this book I'm really looking forward to, which is coming out hopefully in November from Litmus Press in New York. And that's what I've been working on as my side thing, you know. So mm -hmm. um, I've really been working pretty hard on this book because it's 54 pages. Um, and the other thing I'm working a lot on is making a lot of unique uh, accordion books which I haven't really shown or occasionally at a, at a book fair. Um, aside from that, I'm just going to continue along. <laughs> I mean, that's the main thing is it's often hard to get back to work after a show. And while a show is up, it's even, which the show will be up for five weeks, during that time period, it's very hard to figure out. Yeah, it's kind of a Bermuda Triangle of a time. It's very hard. Yeah. And then there's the post 
they like a p kind of postpartum depression it's like the post show thing everybody has it like you're you know you're either let down or you're you've you've got some like issue that you know, maybe you just need a vacation, <laughs> yeah. you know, because um, I'm also looking forward to having a talk during my show and also talking with the public and having an opening and having to tell people, you know, you get questions. Yeah. And it, it you know, sometimes I'm just like, I don't know, <laughs> why did you do such a thing? You know, why is there like a green triangle in this work? Mm -hmm. You know, why are there arrows? I actually got that question a few days ago. And frankly, I couldn't actually answer the question. I think not knowing, <laughs> even as the maker, is a perfectly fine thing. Yeah. Um, no, I, yeah. I, 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 it's just very funny when somebody says, so why are those arrows in your painting? And, and actually, at that moment, I, my mind went blank. And I'm not even sure why they're there. They just worked. Yeah. They were visual. Yeah. It was a visual thing, and sometimes you, it's hard to explain. Yeah, visual they're compositional things. devices. Exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, on that note, thank you for <laughs> describing your work in this context with me. It was really fun to learn about your paintings and, and hear about some of your ideas. Um, Susan, good luck with the forthcoming show. I can't wait to see it, and thanks for participating in this project. Thank you. We've made it to the end. A quick reminder that Deep Color is independently produced and a free resource for listeners. Help support and sustain this project by making a donation online at deepcolorpodcast.com. You can also learn more about each contributing artist, find links to their online portfolios, and access the archive of past recordings. Be sure to share this project within your community and rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and check back soon for a new episode.